talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Yeah, 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 yeah. How you doing? It's good to see you on this uh, monsoon-like day. Uh, yeah. So, it's April something or other, 3rd, 4th, it's the 3rd. And the Pirates are undefeated. Man, I, I didn't think I'd say that again. So there we go. We're 4-0. and There's no other team except one, the Nationals, in all of Major League Baseball <laughs> with an enviable record like that. So just saying. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Uh Oh, damn, I sighed. I'm really, 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 really trying not to do that. Uh, so I take that one back. I Let's, before we get into some of the more uh, meaty stuff, uh, I want to start with words again. I, You know, I love them. And I was saying, I think, last week that uh, while English may, in fact supposedly, I don't know that anybody's ever counted, have um, more words than almost any other language. Um, we don't have words for a lot of really interesting kinds of things. And I said, I think the Germans seem to have a lot of those words, which, because we don't have them, end up having to borrow incorporate into our language, like schadenfreude, um, which is, of course, uh, taking delight in others' misery. <laughs> you know, it's something you don't want to acknowledge usually, uh, but there it is, and it's something we all do, and the Germans have a word for it. Uh, they also have a word, and I'm not ever sure how to pronounce this, for all I know, I'm not doing schadenfreude, right, either. They have a word for simply probably the state that most of us are in these days regarding the state of uh, our nation, the state of the world. Um, uh, and this word, these are all like conceptual. This word in German is is that it it literally is sort of defined as that that feeling you have when you recognize that the reality of the world uh, is nowhere near uh, where it should be or where idealistically uh, you want it to be. So it's, it's, it's the distance between the uh, actual and the ideal in terms of the world. And and the Germans have a word for that, which is, uh, and again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, is it Weltschmerz? <laughs> I don't know, wait. I, let me just make sure I'm even, uh, yeah, Weltschmerz. Weltschmerz. Weltschmerz, like, I, I don't know. I didn't take German. I, I don't know. But isn't that great to have a word for that? I mean, look how I stumbled around trying to even define that word, which is what you have to do in English since we don't have a word. 
And we don't have a word for the guilty pleasure of delighting in some other person's misfortune. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of space for uh, invention of of new words. And I I bring this up because I came upon another word that is a wonderful word that does not exist in English. And this one's not German, this is Japanese. And uh, it's, it's a word for bibliophiles. It's a word for uh, those of us who are prone to, uh, because of our love of reading and our love of books, have a, well, we have this sort of bit of an addiction, not quite rising to that level, but it's a compulsion to purchase books uh, that we guiltily figure we're never going to get around to reading. <laughs> Even as you buy the book, you think, uh, I don't know that I'm going to read it, but you got to have it. And that is something that I do. And consequently, in my house, you will see you know, stacks of of books all over the place, next to my bed, in other places, in the bedroom, in bathrooms, in the living room, on the dining room table. There's books piling up, um, and it's true. Even books on in my bookshelves, I haven't read all those books. Have you read the books in on on your bookshelves? It seems like. If a book's in your bookshelf, you have read it, and then you finished it, and you put it on the shelf. But uh, I could literally never buy another book and simply read the books in my house, and I wouldn't even finish them before I died. I, there's, there's no way, unless I literally read 12 hours a day. And yet, I just bought a book the other day. Hardcover. I, I buy hardcover books at independent bookstores, and... The thing is, there's actually a Japanese word for the act of letting books pile up without reading them. <laughs> and here's the word. And again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It sounds a little like Sudoku, the the number game that some folks play all the time. It's Tsundoku, Tsundoku, and that's, yeah, letting books pile up that you haven't read or guiltily acknowledged to yourself and no one else that you're never going to get around to it in all likelihood either. Um, I've even been known to reread a book before I crack a book that I that I have there, that I intend to read, that I that I don't. But so I was just blown away by finding out that um, there is actually a word for that, and 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 people like uh, like me, um, we can't throw magazines away. You know, I I stopped subscribing to most magazines because they would pile up, and. 
And I couldn't throw them out if I hadn't read them. And I have like New York Times Sunday magazines piling up in my bathroom. I, you know, I've done the puzzles, but I haven't necessarily read certain articles that I want to. And they, I just, I have this inability to acknowledge that I'm not going to get around to reading them. And then there are certain magazines which you simply cannot throw out, like a National Geographic. Can you throw out a National Geographic? There's something like, isn't that a crime or something? I, 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 I don't know. Uh, so here is one bibliophile talking. This is the guy who discovered the Japanese word. And he says, the presence of books acquired produces such an ecstasy that the buying of more books than one can read is nothing less than the soul searching towards infinity. We cherish books even if unread because their mere presence exudes comfort. Their ready access, a reassurance. I totally get that. I mean, totally get that. And I remember my mother saying of one of our relatives, she said, and I hadn't noticed it. And once she said it, I've never been able to feel the same way about these people, <laughs> even though they're family. She said, did you ever notice there are no books in their house? I mean, to me, that is unbelievable. Now, granted, now with books on, you know, gizmos, um, but I'm not, I, I can't go there. I'm sorry. I guess for travel and stuff, that might be okay, but no books. I love them. So, uh, there it is. Tsundoku, Japanese. Boy. We Americans got a lot of work to do to get our language up to snuff. Beth, well, th good. Beth says, you just made my day with this conversation. <laughs> I have books lining my steps to the second floor. Aww. My friends just roll their eyes and often borrow them. They know I'm a good lending library. Thanks for brightening an otherwise gloomy day. You're welcome. Yeah, just yesterday I lent a book to a friend and got one returned to me by another friend. Yeah, I'm a lending library too. <laughs> well, you know when you read a book and you love, and actually our receptionist out here, uh, he's got the most recent book I bought. I bought it. I know he's on uh, a waiting list at the Carnegie Library down the street to get this book. And I bought it, and I thought, well, you know, knowing you, you're not, I'm in the middle of another book. So I brought it in, and he's reading uh, my book that I haven't even gotten home yet. So that's the way it works when, yeah, you love books. Just saying, that's all. I can quit now. I made Beth's day, so and this is before I've ruined some of some of your others. Is that right? 
I made Beth's day, and that's before I ruined some of your other's days. It was a, as sentences go, it was not one of my better ones. It would be hard to diagram. Do they teach diagramming sentences still? Amy, when you were in school, did they teach di They did? Okay. Well, she's young, quite a bit younger than me. I don't think my son learned. I don't know. Um, I loved it. It was sort of, I mean, I was never good at algebra, but it seemed to me this was like the, the, uh, the using words in the, in, the, in the same way, you know, figuring out where they belonged in this. I loved it. I once diagrammed... Um, what was it? The Gettysburg Address? The first? Well, it was a long sentence. Maybe it was the preamble to the Constitution. I can't remember. It was a long, long sentence. And uh, what joy I felt upon completion. Okay, so what do we have? <laughs> I'm looking, and it's, it's not pretty. I got one more science thing here. Susan is not able to join us today, for those of you who are wondering where the hell my sister is. Um, this came out of the uh, science section of the uh, New York Times, and um, this is for hockey fans. A study has actually been done. Uh, this was done in uh, no, Montreal. So it was done in Montreal in a hospital, one, so as studies go, this is not a huge study, one hospital in Montreal from 2010 to 2014 kept track of ER admissions for heart attack. Um, and they were just trying to see generally is there any is there any pattern here that we should be aware of, like, you know, weekends or mornings or this isn't that's or and they 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 finally, you know, said, Okay, we got enough numbers, we got thousands here, so let's break it down. And what they what they found is that on the day after the Montreal Canadians played and if the Montreal Canadiens won, this is weird, not lost, won, there was a 15% rise um, in people coming in with uh, heart attacks the day after a win. And this applied more to men than to women. Uh, women's numbers remain pretty much the same, but on the day after games, admissions for men, uh, in some cases, more than doubled. But it appeared that generally that was after a win, not after a loss. And guys under 55 were the most susceptible <laughs> to this day after a hockey win heart attack thing. I'm just saying. I mean, I wouldn't put too much 
into it, nor did the doctors who put the book out. They said, I mean, book out, the study out. They said, this study is merely observational and it is not reason to make any suggestions about causation. So they're, even though they noted the numbers, they're not willing to say it's cause and effect. The Canadians win and people have heart attacks. <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, oh, and the other, they said one of the reasons actually could be that when uh, these guys are watching the hockey game, they're eating junk food, they're drinking, they're getting really excited, and that stresses the heart. And, you know, so there you have it. There you have it. Um, okay. Now what? I am avoiding getting into the heavy stuff. Uh, okay, here it is. I wanted to, the, so news uh, has been out for a few days now about the despicable uh, Scott Pruitt and the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, which, of course, needs a name change um, under him, uh, like the Environmental Despoilization uh, Agency. Um, and the news, I mean, there's a lot of bad news about this guy, most of which, of course, is what he is doing in that position and with that power. But in terms of the swamp and the corruption that Trump has uh, brought to Washington, D.C. Um, the news that Scott Pruitt has been paying $50 a night for a real nice condo in Washington, D.C. Now, anyone who's ever spent a night in Washington other than at a friend's or relative's house will tell you you can't get anything for $50 a night, let alone an entire condo. Scott Pruitt found this great deal because the condo in question belongs to the wife of a major energy lobbyist. <laughs> now, you don't even have to even vaguely have an idea about the appearance of uh, a potential conflict of interest that he would that the offer would be made is amazing to me because who would think it would be accepted ah. but it's made and it is gratefully accepted well sure and how much do i pay you 50 okay all right i'm on it i'm in it the deal. And here's here's the other thing. The Wall Street Journal reports, or did they? Who reported it? Um, that well, dang it. I mean, I like to be here. It is. It's the New York Times reported it. So in March last March, a year ago, shortly after becoming the head of the EPA, one of the first things that Scott Pruitt did was sign off 
on uh, a Canadian energy company's request to expand their pipeline in the United States. And, well, when would would Scott Pruitt say no to something like that? Of course he'd say yes. Uh, And, of course, he said yes. But this is the company that is represented by the lobbyist who gave him this incredible deal for 50 bucks a night. Nice, nice condo. Right near where he works. Mm -hmm. So no sooner had they given him a condo and a bed, essentially almost for free, than he said, oh, sure, go ahead, you do it. So it's not even now, at this point, it's not the appearance of. It is, you know, evidence that uh, they're taking care of each other. Well, right before I came into the studio, I saw this. And it is being reported by uh, John Roberts at Fox News. Okay. And he put this out in all caps. Here's John Roberts, Fox News. An administration official tells Fox News that President Trump called EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt last night to offer his support, saying, keep your head up, keep fighting, we've got your back. And Roberts also reports that Chief of Staff Kelly also called Pruitt this morning, to reiterate President Trump's support. And all of this, while the cave by CNN and MSNBC and even Fox are talking about the incredible unseemliness and corruption, I just bald, bold corruption. of Pruitt getting his bed and uh, environs uh, essentially for free from an energy lobbyist. And this is the same Donald Trump that like just threw out the VA guy for, I don't know, uh, bringing his wife along on some trip. The reason being, of course, Trump loves what uh, Pruitt's doing in the position. Uh, For instance, uh, this is a Wall Street Journal uh, headline today. that This is Scott Pruitt's EPA, and uh, they're absolutely eviscerating, rolling back the uh, standards for uh, vehicle emissions, uh, which, of course, is a way of combating global warming. But since Scott Pruitt doesn't believe in global warming and also doesn't believe in asking corporations like automakers to do anything that they don't want to do, they are, yeah, 
They're absolutely gone. The damage being done by these folks is just, it's, it's, hard, to, uh, it's hard to keep up with. Because while we're all aware of this thing, because it got a lot of publicity that happened, the EPA um, easing these vehicle emission requirements, um, God knows what other actions were taken by regulatory agencies in Washington by Trump uh, administration officials yesterday. Just pick a day, yesterday. Because we're not hearing about uh, the half of it. Oh, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. I want to thank uh, Milton for uh, sending me, uh, I mean, I don't know if I want to thank you, Milton, because it was the most disgusting thing I've seen in a long time. Uh, yesterday, was it a caller? Yeah, who said, had, had I seen the um, Trumpy Bear thing, uh, advertisement or commercial, and I, thank God, had not. Well, uh, Milton has uh, corrected that uh, oversight on my part. He sent me it. And oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, this has nothing to do, by the way, it is not Trump himself that's putting this out. It is not the White House in any way. This is an entrepreneur who's making money like a bandit putting out this disgusting uh, ad. And it's, it, I guess as bears go, teddy bears go, it's cute enough. And then you notice that on the top of its head is this thatch of orange hair, which you can comb over. And, uh, but otherwise, it's cute, I think. And here's the kicker. It's a big guy, and you can unzip its back, and out comes an American flag. Yep. And so... I guess pe people they can't keep them in stock. They're 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 fly. They're not on shelves per se. They can't they can't make them fast enough. People are paying forty dollars for this thing called Trumpy Bear. And uh, boy, Milton said, you know, I, the first time he saw it, he thought it was some type of uh, parody. And it is. It's it's that bad. I mean, you look at it and you think, okay, you know, you don't want to get take, taken. You know, you figure somebody's pulling my leg here. Is this something from, I don't know, The Onion or is it some SNL thing? Is it, uh, you know, you don't want to, you can't imagine. It's true. It's true. Wow. No, just saying, so. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. I wish no one had told me about it. It hadn't come up, and Milton hadn't sent me this, and I never would have seen it. But there it is. I'm, I've seen it. Once seen, it cannot be unseen. I've been carrying this around for ages, and I want to get rid of it. Okay, so I'm going to subject you to it. I can't even remember my initial rage when I <laughs> So I know I was going to do a big rant. You see this guy? You see that guy? He's reclined kind of sitting on some, I mean, it looks like he's in some Turkish 
harem room or something without the women. I mean, it is a sumptuous, I believe is the word. Uh, so who is this guy? John Paul DeJoria. And uh, he owns a liquor company. And he owns a 1927 rail car. And this is part of the interior of his train car that he owns, the Tequila Express. And it is unbelievably ornate. I've got other pictures here you cannot believe. You cannot believe. It has a dining area. It has a master suite. It has all of this stuff. And do you know what? Turns out this is not unusual. That the latest thing for the rich, because they got so goddamn much money, right? They're holding most of the wealth of the world. And what do you do with it? I mean, you know, at some point, what do you do with all that money? It just starts piling up. Becomes like dust mites. It annoys you. You got to do something with it. You got to... Make it into something, I don't know, tangible. Something that will make other people envious. I think that's a big part of it. And so a lot of guys with money are now buying up private train cars. Outfitting them to beat the band like this guy. And guess what? They can hook them onto an Amtrak train. Uh-huh. And they travel, there's about, they said there's about 150 right now that have been certified by Amtrak to be in, you know, I guess, track-worthy shape. And Amtrak does allow them to hook on the back of regular trains and uh, off they go. Um, and it's not that, it's $2.90 a mile. Which doesn't, e I mean, that is so cheap, it's ridiculous. Two ninety dollars a mile for these guys. I mean, anyone who can afford this, two ninety dollars a mile is like free, right? Two ninety dollars a mile is what Amtrak charges. I ask you, is that enough to charge? Some rich person wants to hook their car. Why should it be two ninety a mile? Why shouldn't it be forty dollars a mile? Jesus. Now they granted there's a few other fees that they throw on, but pfft, not not much. I didn't know that. And there's some there's some concern that this has a tendency to sometimes slow the Amtrak uh, schedule a little bit while they're hooking and unhooking. And um, you cannot imagine some of the interiors of these things. I remember back in the 70s when my sister and her husband were living on the upper, 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 upper west side of Harlem. Not Harlem. Manhattan. It was, I think, north of Harlem. I don't know where the heck they were. They were almost um, middle of nowhere. They, um, we were visiting once, 
and someone had scrawled. This was at the same time that Son of Sam was killing people in New York. So I remember Susan and I were like nervous, <laughs> figuring we might be the next. Um, and we actually got lost at one day, and we were really, oh no, we just knew we got lost because we were going to end up in Son of Sam's front yard or something. Um, but we saw this huge bunch of, uh, you know, graffiti. And I'd never seen it before. I've seen it since, but I loved it. And it simply said, it was, <laughs> it said, eat the rich. <laughs> Which I would think if you were a rich person, you would find that incredibly unsettling. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad enough to worry about people, you know, wanting your stuff or something, but to imagine that there's a cannibalistic aspect to it. And, a, and anyone who understands cannibalism, it's the rich. Because they eat our lunch every day. Anyway. Eat the rich! What else have I got here? I got nothing. I admit it. I admit it. Oh, I mean, I got nothing that's uplifting. And if somebody does, feel feel free. Oh, I did like this, and I wanted to um, I wanted to share it with you because it's absolutely right. And I, this was in a review of the Roseanne thing. Uh, by the way, her despicableness, Roseanne Barr, has gotten a lot more play. Did I did I talk about the the Hitler thing she did? Amy, do you have any recollection of me? And I'm really sorry if uh, if I did, but I, I don't recall it. She, it was going around the uh, internet, and she did this maybe 10 years ago or something. She dressed up as Adolf Hitler, and there, there's a picture of her as Adolf Hitler taking a cookie sheet out of an oven, and on the sheet are, you know, people, cookies, and they're burnt, they're sort of like burned up, and she's, she's smiling. I mean, there is no, I mean, it's not funny. <laughs> That's not funny. There is no way you could excuse that as an attempt at humor, making fun of the fact that women and children and were stuck in ovens and burned. And there she is. It's like, oh, my cookies. And who's that? I also don't like her. Kathy, whatever her name is, with the severed Trump head, who got, I mean, literally ridden out of town on a, a rail, tarred and feathered and all of that, for, you know, a fake Trump head. And Roseanne Barr is beloved. And there's that. There's that picture. And it, it's a picture that 
has been, um, you know, it's not photoshopped. It's not, it is Roseanne Barr. She did dress as Adolf Hitler. She did do the cookie thing, the burnt cookie thing. I mean, you have to be beyond despicable. And here's what makes it even more beyond despicable. And I hate to say this. She's a Jew. It's it's beyond belief. Anyway. So this is about the Roseanne thing who's written this uh oh Roxanne Gay. And uh She's talking about, I didn't see the second episode um, because I ain't going to watch it ever again. <laughs> because I saw, after the first one, I saw the Hitler cookie thing. I would no more uh, add two eyeballs to her ratings than, uh, you know, I'd, I'd just as soon, you know, cut my right hand off. But here's what Roxanne Gay says. What often goes unsaid in this country is that when we talk about the working class, what the way working class is defined in our heads, in our cultural imagination, we're talking about white people. Right? Think about it. When you say, yeah, working class, you have that sort of Rosie the Riveter thing. You got the, you know, you got, you got, you know, the white. It's white. It is. She's absolutely right. It had never occurred to me, but that's the picture in the cultural picture. The working class. Black people need not apply. Brown people need not apply. Because we like to say they're lazy, right? So they can't be in the working class. The working class is good, hard-working white people. And that, of course, is not the true image of the American working class, which is a, like America, uh, made up of many, many races, many ethnicities. In fact, very black and brown in this country. And Roxanne Gay points out that during uh, an interview promoting her new show, Roseanne Barr said this, quote, it was working class people who elected Trump. Okay. That's not true. We all say that. That's what people say, right? And Roxanne Gay reminds us that this is bullshit. It's a myth somewhat like the mythology of what is the American working class. Because here's the way the election broke down in 2016. Voters who earned less than $50,000 a year, I think we can call those working class, 
who earned less than $50,000 a year. 53% voted for Hillary Clinton. 41% voted for Donald Trump. So how do we get this thing? Well, it was that working class. Because what she means is it was those white people. So this puts the lie to, again, what constitutes the working class in most Americans' heads. Because it absolutely X's out anybody who's not white. But if you take the real working class, not the myth, the real working class, the majority voted for Hillary. Yeah. And the reality is, is that the median income of people who voted for Trump was $72,000, okay? Now, I don't, I put you probably in this day and age, what, lower middle? $72,000. While the median income of Hillary Clinton's voters was 61000 So when it came to people with less money, the working class, they voted for Hillary Clinton. More so. Much more so, actually, than they did for Donald Trump. So the persistence of these false It's not a meme. These false narratives about how we got where we are. Don't blame it on the working class because that besmirches a whole bunch of brown and black hardworking folks. If you want to say the white working class, then we got different numbers. Because it is white people who elected Donald Trump. That's the only true statement. White people elected Donald Trump. Way to go, Caucasians. Way to go. My God. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to. Oh, my God. One horrible thing after another here. No wonder I sighed at the beginning. I, I, and only I knew the fodder I had here. Um, oh, let, let's just uh, talk a little bit more seriously about uh, <laughs> Trump's trade war. Jesus. Um, China, ha as we know, has made its initial response to uh, the tariffs that Trump has imposed. And it occurred to me while I was reading uh, about what the Chinese had done, the incredible difference in approaches of our country and the Chinese. Because Trump, of course, his approach to starting this trade war, or 
if you want to say that the Chinese started, that he was just responding. Okay, let's say he responded. He responded with a sledgehammer, a, you know, yeah, and I'm putting on this tariff on that and that on this, and it's this high, and all these countries are going to be subject to it. And then, of course, when cooler heads prevailed a day or two later, um, most of the countries were immediately exempted. <laughs> uh, none of it is going into effect. I can't, why can't I call this up? Damn it. So, but there was a piece in the Washington Post today that will not show up on my computer for some reason. But it talked about the precision with which the Chinese responded. You got the Americans with their sledgehammer, and you have the Chinese responding with a scalpel. Smarter, much smarter. Because when they decided where they were going to impose tariffs, they literally had access to the same information that the Russians had when they fiddled with our... All that information, as you know, we now know, is out there. So the, you think the Chinese don't have a complete understanding of where Americans are who voted for Donald Trump, what they do for a living... <laughs> how to hit his people, because that's what they did. Surgical, precise, and it's smart, as opposed to sledgehammers. It's smart as hell, because they absolutely, first of all, focused almost entirely on the agriculture sector, because we do know that those hard-working farmers, white, overwhelmingly, voted for Trump. So you hit the farmers because they're going to start howling. They're going to feel it. They're going to howl to their Congress people, their senators, and it's going to get very quickly to the White House. So here is, this shows an intelligent government response to this kindergarten sandbox bully boy approach of the Trump administration. And when you see that these other countries out there, you know, we're, we're right now um, a country totally adrift. We have no leadership. We have a buffoon at the helm. And other countries are just going to play us left, right, and center. And it makes you just queasy to know that Trump apparently invited Vladimir Putin to D.C. to come see him at the White House when he called to do exactly what everybody told him not to, which is to congratulate Vladimir Putin on his electoral victory. And it turns out he invited him to come. Now, normally, no country rolls out a red carpet <laughs> for the head of a nation which rather brazenly interfered in our election. And 
which rather brazenly tried to kill some people in uh, on the streets of uh, our supposed major ally in Great Britain, and who invades countries willy-nilly, and who is uh, actually fighting us in Syria, and on and on, and he invites Vladimir Putin. Um, he is no match for Vladimir Putin. So inasmuch as this buffoon, who is now unspeakably our president, seems to relish finding himself in the company of these autocrats who are more than happy to be in his company because he's an idiot. <laughs> or as the Russians like to say, he's a useful idiot. And so if Putin does come, I can't even imagine it, um, any other administration, Republican or Democrat, would have absolutely refused to have him step foot in this country. Um, Trump warmly embraces him. And if this summit between Trump and the North Korean head of state happens, it will be the same. It will be the same. Way out of his league way, way, way dangerously out of his league. The danger, of course, to us and to perhaps the people of South Korea and who knows what else. So the only thing I like about all of this is that all those farmers who voted for Trump, well, you voted for him. He's the genius you, you voted for. You wanted a change. Here's your change. It's, I'm glad the Chinese are doing it. Target his people. You know, rub their noses in what a fool that they voted for. We have a call. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hey, um, the United States has, um, like you talk about the working class, and that's not true. The facts, we always change the facts. Like you take, and I have no disrespect to the World War II veterans. My father-in-law was one, and the people who died and all that. But we'll say we won the war, but, yeah, we had a big part in that. But the true winner, people that won the war was the Russians, who That's lost true. 20 to 27 million people to our half right. a million to right. 600,000. So there's right there. Right. That's how we are. We always change the story and the facts of everything, especially when it comes to wars, because if you look at a lot of these people that are out there talking now, they're saying that was a just war in Vietnam, and some of the in Iraq, they're starting to twist that history, too, but that's what they do. Now, definitely we had to go over there in World War II, but I'm not saying nothing about that, but we, we have a history of doing that. Well, you're right. You're, well, yeah, we rewrite it so that we're the hero. I mean, we look. Yeah. Uh, the war would not have against Hitler would not have been won uh, without us, and definitely without the Russians. I mean, and there is right. no doubt that the Russians took the brunt. The Russian people took the brunt 
Um, and we owed them big time in that, in that case. But, oh, God. Hey, and speaking of that, I'm seeing like a... like the bomb being dropped. Yeah. There were so many generals that didn't agree with that. Well, that, that question will be argued from now until the end of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's like quite a few that didn't agree with that. And that they said that wasn't the real reason either. Well for Japan was the Russians again because they were invading in Japan. So it's it's uh, the history is kind of like mucked up or whatever you want to say. Well, it's written. It's just not the popular history, you know, that what, yeah, what, it, what, that's, what yeah. it's it's out there, but it's not necessarily the mythology that gets taught. Um, I, right. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I was thinking, by the way, it just occurred to me. I, I was thinking somehow of that picture toward the end of the war at Yalta with uh, FDR and Churchill and Stalin uh, meeting to start carving up the spoils. And um, there is a movie out now. I think it's called The Death of Stalin. What's it called? I, it, whatever. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Guys, that is a hysterically funny movie. I happened to see it. It is it's hard to believe that a movie about Stalin could be funny, but let me just say this: Steve Buscemi plays Nikita Khrushchev. It is, it's a riot. It really is. So, just saying, if you want to have a giggle, uh, go see that movie. Seriously. And you were talking about Roseanne Barks. She, she's now pushing some story that Trump stopped this sex ring or something. No facts, no truth, just oh, like yeah. Trump. Right. Staying yeah. on the internet, and yeah. everybody's just bashing her, and I'm glad. Cause yeah. show, show us the facts before you start making statements, and that's what I always want to say to Trump, but it never happens. <laughs> you haven't you bumped know, into uh, him? Just... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, too bad. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> yep. Okay. Okay, we'll see you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah, I know. We all have something we'd like to say to him. I know. Um, in terms of uh, workers whose rights are stepped on, who are treated like crap, I mean, uh, there's. I love the fact these teachers are feeling their oats. I love it because they do have real power uh, together. And I'm so behind them. Another gr- and that, they're mostly women. Right, another group that is all women that is treated like absolute chattel, um, and but I don't waste a lot of energy on it because I don't, I don't like the very idea of them. It's NFL cheerleaders, and I bring this up only because it's a front page story in today's New York Times, and I've read about their working conditions before, but you know, the NFL. I'm sorry. It's hard to find a more despicable organization. Seriously. Uh, I mean, stop and think what NFL cheerleaders are all about anyway. It's the total objectification of the female body. That's all it is. I mean, what does football have to do with, uh, you know, big boobed, uh, you know, know, a certain build of, of, of woman jumping around, gyrating, often suggestively in dances on the sideline of a football game. What is that for? I'm asking. Eh? Eh? We know what it's for. Okay. 
but they work hard jumping around like that. And they have to practice and do all this stuff. But when you see some of what they're subjected to in terms of their uh, employment, um, it's, it is despicable. Okay? Uh, cheerleaders for the Carolina Panthers must arrive at the stadium on game days at least five hours before kickoff. Why? <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> Five hours before kickoff. Body piercings and tattoos must be removed or covered. Water breaks can be taken only when the Panthers are on offense. They must leave the stadium to change into their personal attire. What? So they have to come. I'm so confused by this. They have to they don't come five hours before wearing their little bikini-ish outfits, do they? But in order to get out of their little silly outfits, they can't do that at the stadium? They have to leave? I mean, what is that about? Uh, a lot of it is about, obviously, controlling these women. Some cheerleaders must pay hundreds of dollars for their skimpy little uniforms, yet they get paid little more than minimum wage. That's it. And then they are prevented from earning any money beyond that by maybe cashing in on the fact that they're a woo, NFL cheerleader. It's a, absolutely not allowed. They are forced to sell raffle tickets and calendars in which they appear in bikinis, and they have to appear at all kinds of events, and they receive zero compensation for it they there are handbooks for cheerleaders that tell them how to behave and groom themselves to a degree that is unbelievable they actually tell them how to shave their legs and the get this i i'm dying to know what this is they don't embellish on it and they are tutored on the proper use of tampons They are not allowed to in any way fraternize with players. Uh, they cannot speak with the players. If they are seen speaking to a player, they're dead. They cannot seek their autographs. Any player who follows them, they must block. They are not allowed to post pictures of themselves on social media, blah, blah, blah. So they're life outside the when they're not on the sideline is is controlled for minimum wage listen to this for several years the cheerleaders for the new orleans saints had to sell glossy calendars of themselves in bikinis and before each game they were forced to walk outside the stadium in their skimpy little outfits, hawking these calendars to the fans. And the fans, as you know, many of them, are drunken sots, right? And if they failed to sell 20 calendars a game, they 
would then be forced to, during the game, wander up in the stands between quarters to sell the calendars, the proceeds of which they do not get. So, I think it's fantastic that the Steelers don't have them. And uh, the one thing I'm really proud of with the Steelers, at least they don't have cheerleaders. It's a demeaning, ridiculous position. Sexualized beyond belief. Okay, that's it. I'm done. Um, And uh, tomorrow, uh, Jared Day, our historian, uh, who's a political junkie, is going to be uh, joining us. So we haven't talked to him in a while, so we'll find out how he's uh, holding up (laughs) during the uh, Trump era. Should be interesting. I hope he'll join us. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.